It is good to see you all here this morning and welcome again to Community Church. So glad that you could make it. It's been a, a very cold week, but it's a very beautiful morning. And this morning we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus. And you'll remember that last week we looked at Titus chapter 1, where we saw Paul's instruction to this young pastor named Titus, whom he had discipled and then left on the island of Crete to set things in order. And all of the churches throughout the island, which would mean all of these local bodies of believers on the island of Crete, Titus was to appoint elders in every city because these young churches, they needed guidance and they needed direction in the Lord. So in, first cha- in the first chapter of Titus, Paul gives a very detailed list of both the qualifications and the duties of these men that Titus was to appoint. Okay, so the instruction in chapter 1 is primarily to the church leadership. All right, most likely because a church is just not going to grow any deeper in Christ than its leadership, right? So therefore, the church must have strong biblical leadership in order to teach and protect the sound doctrine of the church, okay? And in order to shepherd them and equip them for the work of the ministry, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. But in chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see the focus shift just a little bit, okay, from the leadership of the church to the church itself, all right? Although Paul does exhort Titus directly as well, whereas in chapter 1, we see Paul give him the command to refute false doctrine, and then he instructs him in the duties that are required by the leadership to accomplish that. Here in chapter 2, the apostle Paul gives Titus the command to teach sound doctrine, okay? And then he instructs them instructs him rather in the duties that are required by the church to respond to that good teaching by living it out. So now obviously sound doctrine is critical to both our belief and our behavior. So what is sound doctrine? Well, the word doctrine here in the Greek, it simply means teaching. It just means instruction. And the Greek word for sound that we see in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 is where we get our word healthy. It's where we get our word whole. Okay, and so what we learn from this is that ridding a congregation of its false teaching, while at the same time providing them with sound teaching, are both necessary if you want your church to be both healthy and whole. Okay, because, you know, sick churches are usually a result of being taught half truths. And Paul addressed that back in chapter one. So our teaching should be whole. Right? It should be sound and healthy. Sound and healthy churches teach the whole counsel of God, in other words. In fact, as J. Vernon McGee said, he said the church must teach sound doctrine or it's not a church. Amen to that. So as we turn our attention this morning to chapter 2 in the book of Titus, I want you to listen to this quote from theologian Adam Clark. He said, Few portions of the New Testament excel this chapter. It may well form a creed, a system of ethics, and textbook for every Christian preacher. Does any man inquire what is the duty of a gospel minister? Send him to the second chapter of this epistle in Titus for a complete answer. And I would say amen. He's exactly right. But you know what? I would even take that a step further, okay? And say, does any person inquire what is the duty of a Christian? Not just a preacher, right? Any person. Okay, so what are the qualities and duties of a biblical church? Well, we're going to find that out right here in Titus chapter 2. So if you would pray with me again quickly, and we'll get into the text this morning. Father, we love you and thank you for 
this opportunity to gather here around your word. We are grateful. We are thankful for it. And we just trust in your promises this morning that your spirit will guide us into all truth. And we ask that you would do that this morning for us. Lord, comfort us with your word if that's what we need. Convict us with your word if that's what we need. We just pray that you would have your way. And we ask it in faith and we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the text. Paul writes, But as for you, speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. The word there is pistis in the Greek. It means faith. So show all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. All right, so this passage ends in the same way that it, that it began, right? With Paul giving Titus this charge to speak. He says, speak, amen, speak these things. Speak what is good and what is true. I mean, what good is truth if it's kept silent, right? So let's look back at verse 1. Paul says, but as for you, speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, okay? So this is in contrast to those who taught the lies and the legalism back in chapter 1, verse 14. Paul told Titus, look, don't give heed to that stuff, okay? When you speak, you make sure that it's true. And I want you to notice there's a purpose behind what he's saying. Did you catch that? I like how the New Living Translation renders this verse. It says, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Wholesome teaching. Amen. You see, the reason we preach right doctrine is so that we can encourage right living. Guys, the Bible teaches us how to live. Okay, Jesus taught us how to live, not just what to believe. Okay, we believe the right things so that we can live in the right way. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Okay, so to observe the commandments of Christ means to obey them. That's what that means. Not just merely acknowledge them. Okay, you see, the Bible is our manual for life. Right? And it shows us how to live. So let's be sure that we understand the practical nature of the scriptures here and learn how to apply them to our life properly, Okay, as Paul said. Because sound doctrine is just as much for your heart, hands, and feet as it is for your head. 
and it's applicable to every person, regardless of our age, regardless of our gender, and so on. And so Paul begins his instruction to the entire church by addressing the older believers in verse 2. He says that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Okay, now Paul's going to go on and address every demographic here, right? The older men, older women, young women, young men, etc. And in three out of the four, he's going to mention the word sobriety. Okay, which can be understood in a couple of different ways. All right. The first way to understand sobriety, of course, is in terms of moderation as it relates to alcohol. All right. Don't get drunk. We see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. But the second way that we see it in Scripture is as it relates to our thinking. Okay, and we see the term sober minded used twice in the letter to Titus, once in chapter one, verse eight, and then again in chapter two, verse six. But Paul said it like this over in Ephesians chapter five, verse 15. He said, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Okay, so the word here is accurate. In other words, do what is right and do what is accurate. In other words, look, don't be a knucklehead. Use your brain, think and walk sober-minded. All right, be wise. Older men are to be reverent as well. The word is dignified. It means honorable. It's someone who is worthy of respect. Okay? Now, it does not mean that when we get older, we're, be- we're going to become grumpy and stuffy and boring, and that's not what we're talking about. That's not reverent. Okay? That's not what that means. The idea of reverence is honorable. Okay, too many times I think in our old age, people can tend to turn into just miserable people if we're not careful. And we need to be careful that we guard against that, right? We don't want to be that person because the Word of God says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's Nehemiah 8.10, right? So be honorable in the joy of the Lord. Don't be miserable, okay? It's not honorable or dignified to walk around grumpy and miserable all the time, right? So cheer up. If you're a seasoned believer, you're on your way to heaven, all right? And the longer you walk with Christ, then the greater your joy will be in Christ. I like what William McDonald said here. He said, be reverent and be dignified. Yes, but please don't be gloomy. Others have enough trouble on their own. (laughs) Amen. They don't need your baggage to carry around with them either, right? Look, don't let this world turn you into a miserable person in your sunset years. No, you keep living in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, think straight, be honorable, and be temperate. Okay, so the word for temperate here, it means to be of a sound mind. That's what that means. But it also means that you're able to curb your impulse, impulses and your desires. Okay, so older brothers in Christ, they should know how to resist temptation. They should know how to find that way of escape that God provides according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, temperance is a sign of maturity in the Lord. All right, that means to take your walk with the Lord seriously. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, seriousness and purpose are important in the Christian life and especially to older saints who can't afford to waste time for their time is short. He's exactly right. But here's the truth this morning. Only God knows the number of our days. Okay, that's Job chapter 14, verse 5. And the truth is that any one of us here this morning could drop dead today. That's just the truth. It's possible, right? So this should serve to encourage all of us to get busy right now living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't delay. 
Older brothers, they should be sound in their faith. They should be sound in their love and in their patience. Okay, now it's true that age can tend to make people bitter and calloused and cynical and things like that. But those who are sound and healthy in their faith and in their love and in their patience are generally a lot more thankful. They're generally a lot more optimistic. Okay, and the truth is they make a whole lot better company as well. Right? So stay faithful. Keep loving on people. Be patient. Because honestly, if you're above ground and breathing here this morning, God is not done with you. He is not finished with you yet. Okay, look at verse 3. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So just like the older men, the older women are to be reverent and sober. And we talked about that, okay? But then he says, older women are not to be slanderers. So to slander someone, it means to falsely accuse them. That's what that means. And if you're interested, the Greek word for slander is diabolos. It's where we get our word for devil. So please, don't take this one lightly, okay? Because when you slander someone, you are doing the work of the devil, so get the facts, right? Don't speak out of turn. Don't speak about someone unless you're building that person up, in other words, and never, ever falsely accuse somebody. That's the devil's job. That's what he does, okay? So just leave that work to him. If you have a problem with somebody, the Bible has a process as to how we need to deal with that, and I would refer you to Matthew chapter 18 for further instruction. But to put it plainly, here's the deal, ladies. If you want to be a daughter of the king then you have to stop doing the work of the devil. And I believe that, honestly, this is just my opinion, right? This is not Bible, but it's my opinion. I believe that two-thirds of any church's problem would vanish immediately if they would simply cut out the gossip and cut out the slander. I think two-thirds of their problems would just vanish. So Christians, we've got to stop letting ourselves off of the hook on this one, okay? And I hope you know that if you can't stop, I mean, just say it bluntly. If you can't stop running your mouth about people, you're only exposing your own immaturity and lack of growth in the Lord. That's all that is, okay? So Paul said, older women, you're to teach, you're to be good uh, teachers of good things, rather, excuse me. So a mature woman of God who lives a life of honor, who can hold her tongue and think clearly and soberly, not giving in to her impulses of the flesh, will most certainly have a lot of good things to teach, won't she? Because she's learned a few things from the Lord along the way, right? And now Paul tells us to whom she should be teaching and what she should teach. Look at verse 4. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So to admonish someone, it means to warn them. It's a reprimand, but a firm reprimand. So the commands listed here in verses 4 and 5, they're no small thing, okay? Not at all. Young women, yes, love your husbands. Love your children. Okay, now most of you young wives and mothers, I get it. You would probably think, well, like I do. You know, I do love my kids and I love my husband. So what's the big deal? I mean, I have to love my kids, right? And I wouldn't have married the guy next to me if I didn't love him. So what's the deal? And I get that. I'm sure you do love your husband. I'm sure you do love your kids, okay? But let me ask you, is it with the kind of love that Paul describes here in this passage? Now, remember, we're talking about obedience here to the Word of God. 
Okay? Listen to this quote from William MacDonald. He said, young women should be taught to love their husband. But this means more than just kissing him when he leaves for work. It includes the myriad of ways in which she can show that she really respects him by acknowledging his headship in the home, by making no major decisions apart from him, by keeping an orderly home, by paying attention to personal appearance, by living within their means, by confessing promptly, by forgiving graciously, by keeping the lines of communication open always, and by refraining from criticizing or contradicting her husband in front of other people and being supportive when things go wrong. Amen. Man, that's great advice. You know, a few years ago, I taught a 35-week-long class on marriage, on biblical marriage. And we covered in depth everything that I just quoted from William McDonald in our characteristics of a godly wife portion of that study. And uh, I don't know, at some point we may go through that study here at Community Church as well. But Paul gives us a great and, and very concise, but a very great version of a godly wife right here in verse 5. He says to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay, so the word for discreet here is the same word that was used for temperate earlier in the passage. All right, in verse 2. So young women, they need to employ that virtue as well, but they're also to be chaste, which is to say pure. They're supposed to be modest. Okay, that's what that word means. Young women are also to be homemakers. And now this is a big one. And for some reason, it gets ignored by most of Christianity today, and I don't understand that. Okay, I wonder why that is. Why is it not really taught anymore that young Christian women need to be Homemakers. Could it be that instead of being biblical, many churches today have allowed secular thinking to invade their community of God? I don't know. That's possible. But we have allowed society to give homemaking a bad name. Okay? And shame on us for letting that happen because being a homemaker is one of the highest honors that you can possibly have. I mean, managing the home and teaching your children is a high calling of God. So don't ever let anyone tell you any different. Don't let anyone ever shame you for being a homemaker and never apologize for serving the Lord in your home and being the primary influencer of your children. If you and your family are in a position to do it, then young wife and mother, stay home. Stay home. Manage your house. Teach your children. I promise you, you're not going to regret that. Now, I understand there are there's exceptions to the rule, okay? I get that. Not every mother can stay home. But I also know this. I know that if a lot of young families would trim some of the fat out of their budget, then they could stay home. More mothers could stay home. And I speak from experience here, okay? We've lived that. But if you can't, you can't. And that's okay. The church is not going to fault you for that, okay? But again, the clear call from Scripture is that you be in the home, if at all possible. Now, Paul goes on to say that young women are to be good, okay? So the word here means kind. Makes us think of Proverbs thirty-one twenty-six that says... She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. So ladies, kindness should be what fills your home. Not sarcasm, not rudeness, okay? not self-centeredness or complaining. No. Fill your home with kindness and see what a difference it makes in your family. It will make a huge difference. 
Next, Paul says that young women, they should be obedient to their own husbands. Now, usually what you'll find here is that when the preacher gets to this point of the text, they'll just crack a joke and move on pretty quick, right? But I'm not going to do that, okay? Because Scripture, the Word of God is too important. And if I want to sleep with a clear conscience at night, I've got to preach the Word of God. And the Word of God says, young women, be obedient to your own husbands, all right? Paul told Titus to tell the older women to teach the younger women to be obedient to their own husbands. Now, that's what he said, and that's what he meant, okay? But I want you to notice something. Paul did not instruct Titus to teach these younger women, did he? No. He told the older women to do that, okay? So two important things here. The first thing is for pastors and elders. We need to understand that it's not appropriate to ever be alone with another woman that's not your wife. Okay? The second thing we learn here is that older women need to take note because you have a biblical responsibility as an older woman to teach and train these younger women on how to be godly wives and how to be godly mothers. That responsibility is on you. I mean, remember why Paul left Titus and Crete in the first place, right? It was to set things in order, the things that are lacking according to chapter 1, verse 5. And a biblical marriage is most definitely one of the things that is lacking in our society today. Okay? But you know, God, He is a God of order. He always does things for a reason. He does them for our good and for His glory. And the family of God, or the family, rather, is God's idea. We need to understand that marriage is God's idea. Okay? And He's arranged it in such a way that when people... Look at a godly marriage. They can see a beautiful picture of Christ and His church. That's what we represent. Okay, That's what biblical marriage represents, Christ and His church. And when we decide to rebel against God and not fulfill our own roles within the context of marriage, then what we do is we blaspheme the Word of God, according to verse 5. I mean, do you see what's at stake here? The Word of God will be blasphemed if you don't get your marriage in line with what the Bible teaches. Okay, So what better reason is there than for the sake of Holy Scriptures for a husband and a wife to get along, operating within their biblical roles, work things out, live in obedience to the Word of God. I mean, do you really want your life to speak evil of the Word of God? That's what blasphemy means. It means to speak evil of. Okay, Of course you don't want that. No believer wants that, okay? So submit your life and submit your marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ and be sure that He is at the center of it. Obviously, a lot more could be said here regarding marriage, but for the sake of time, let me just say this. When husbands are loving their wives like Christ loves the church, according to Ephesians 5.25, then they're a joy to follow, okay? If husbands are doing their job, living like Christ, loving their wives like Christ loved the church, then they're a joy to follow. And if both the husband and the wife behave according to the commands of Scripture, then both of them will ultimately be satisfied and God will be glorified. Verse 6, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Okay, so there's not a long list here, but I think that's for a couple of reasons. First, if a young man is sober-minded, then that means he's already thinking biblically. Okay? And when you're thinking biblically, then you're more apt to act biblically, right? Another possible reason for the shorter list here could be because in verse 7, Paul turns his attention back to Titus, okay, who is obviously a young man himself. So the other young men there, they can just simply model the character of Paul as he instructs Titus, right? 
Okay, so Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, Paul wrote more about uh, Titus the example than he did about Titus the exhorter. A pastor preaches best by his life. He must constantly be a good example in all things. Whatever the pastor wants his church to be, he must first be himself. For they say and do not was our Lord's indictment against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 3. That's hypocrisy. Amen. It is. There's no doubt about that. So here's what you do, Titus. Look at verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Okay. So the word for pattern here, it means type. And the idea behind it is that of, this is pretty cool. The idea is that it's one of a die that has been cast and has made an impression. Okay? In other words, the thing that was impressed upon now becomes a type of the thing that impressed on it. Right? So Paul is telling Titus to live in such a way that you leave a lasting impression on people. Isn't that cool? And the impression that you leave, it should be one of good works. It should be one of good doctrine, integrity, reference, and incorruptibility. I mean, that's quite a legacy, honestly. If you ask me, but Paul is saying, be the kind of person, Titus, that Christ calls everyone in his church to be. You lead the way. You practice what you preach. Okay. And you live above reproach as a pastor. He says in verse eight to speak with sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. You know, doctrine and duty are always linked together in the Bible, okay? Right belief, it just assumes right behavior, okay? And it's our witness to the world. That's what it is. It's our witness that Jesus really does save, for real, okay? Pastor Miles uh, de Benedictus, he said it like this, there is no argument as effective as a holy life. And he's right, amen. Again, Dr. Wearsby said, when we serve faithfully, we beautify the Bible. Man, I love that quote. When we live according to the Bible, we beautify the Bible in the eyes of those who see us live it out. So as Christians, we should want non-believers to be able to examine our lives from top to bottom and come away saying, I want that. I want what you have. Verse 9, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Okay, now, of course, the Bible never, ever condones slavery, right? In fact, it condemns it. Okay, but it also removes the abuses of slavery through the power of the gospel. All right, but slavery, it was a reality in Paul's day. And so he had to write within that context. Yet he wrote from a Christian perspective. Okay, again, if things are to be set in order, right, then just as the church is to be obedient to Christ and the wives are to be obedient to their husbands, then slaves are to be obedient to their masters. All right. So they should not begrudge them, but work to please them in all things. But Paul takes it a step further and he says, by the way, do it without complaining. Don't talk back, which would include under your breath. It would include, you know, around the corner by the water cooler or into your co-worker's ear. See, we can understand slavery here to mean employment, right? Verse 10, not pilfering, not showing all good fidelity or but showing all good fidelity rather than the word means faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. All right, so to pilfer, that just means to steal, okay? Paul's saying, look, don't take what's not yours, okay? And just so we don't forget, Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. 
So in reality, we're all working for Jesus, okay? And we're all using his resources to do it, okay? And that would include our time and our talents. It's all his, all of it. And it's all to be used for his glory. So let's not rob God of any more of his time, okay? Let's get busy living for him because you never know. God might use you to lead someone to Christ at your workplace. Very possible. But there was a reason. This is interesting. There was a reason that Christian slaves back in Paul's time, they actually brought more money at auctions. I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine this slavery auction idea, but that was the reality in the first century, right? But the, the Christian slaves, they brought more money because they were honest and they had integrity, right? And so this came from their unwillingness to compromise the word of God. They were unwilling to compromise the doctrine of God. So I think we should be learning something here. I mean, Paul said that these slaves, or as it relates to us, these employees should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And I absolutely love that phrase, adorn the doctrine. Man, what a word picture that is. Pastor Jeremy Foster of Calvary Chapel in the Ozarks, he says it like this, you're to wear the teaching. And I think that's a great translation. We are to put on the teachings of Scripture like a jacket and wear them wherever we go. We don't take it off at work. We don't take it off at the gym. We don't take it off at the house. No, we wear it like our favorite outfit, unashamed for all the world to see, okay? That word adorn, it's the Greek word cosmeo, and it's where we get our English word cosmetic, okay? And it means to put in order. It means to arrange or make ready to prepare, so you see, if we are to put things in order and if we're to arrange them correctly, then we would say that our Christianity should always trump our profession, shouldn't it? So what I'm saying is this. These slaves back in Paul's day, they belonged to Christ first and they knew it. Okay, That was their priority, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are to make our lives ready, if we're to be prepared as the word suggests, then what we will do is we will wear this teaching. We will put Christ first in everything that we do. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's the inside. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's outside, right? So biblical faith is a faith that visibly works. Okay, It's a faith that wears its own teaching because a doctrine that can't be worn on the outside frankly is not worth having on the inside is it so don't be bashful believer you live out loud for the lord jesus christ unashamed so that others might see your good works and glorify your father in heaven as jesus said in matthew 5 16 look at verse 11 for the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men okay so now paul shifts his teaching he shifts from talking about the doctrine of salva or sanctification rather to the doctrine of justification. So he's been talking about being more Christ-like. Now he's going to begin talking about coming to Christ. And we know from Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2.8 that anyone and everyone, if they are saved, have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? The grace is what and the faith is the how. And here he highlights two very important aspects of grace. First, we see that grace is brought to us. Did you see that? We didn't go out and find it. We weren't looking for it, 
right? No, it came to us. Grace was brought to us, and God is the one who brought it. And to whom did he bring his grace? Well, this is the second thing that we learn here from this passage. God brought his grace to all men. All men. And yes, this is salvific grace. Okay, this is not just some sort of common grace like breathing or the sunshine or the rain. No, this grace of God actually brings salvation. And it's appeared to everyone. The Greek word here is pas, P-A-S, and it's used here for the word all. That's a primary root word, okay? And it's used in this verse without declension. I know this is exciting, but what this means is, is that it includes every variation of the form of the word by which its grammatical case, number, and gender, gender are identified. All right, so let me put that plainly. This word all means exactly what you think it means. It means all without distinction. All without distinction. In other words, no one is excluded from this grace that brings salvation. Praise the Lord. Christ died for everybody. William MacDonald writes, This is a bona fide offer of pardon and forgiveness made to all. But only those who truly receive Him as Lord and Savior are saved. Amen. Now we learn something else very interesting about grace here in verse 12. It teaches us something. Okay? Grace teaches us something, that it's never unknowingly placed upon us. Okay, this is talking, this is really speaking against pre-faith regeneration, right? No, grace appears. We can see it. We can see it in Christ. We can see it in the lives of other believers. We see it in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, according to Romans 1.16. Which, by the way, that word for everyone that Paul uses in Romans 1.16, it's the same word for all that he uses here in Titus 2.11. Same word. So here's what grace is teaching us. And here's what we need to learn from it. Look at verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Man, what a great verse. There's just so much gospel truth in this verse right here. It's a basic presentation of the gospel. Grace teaches us repentance. Did you see that? Denying ungodliness. That's turning away from your sin and the lust of this world. Deny that. Grace teaches us obedience, okay? And primarily obedience to the gospel because you cannot live righteously unless you've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't, of course, live godly unless you know God, right? So an appropriate question for us to ask right here is, do I know God? Do I know him? Have I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone to save me? Have I done that? If you haven't, then I pray that you will. Okay, Paul is teaching us something here. And so I pray that we can be teachable this morning and obey this gospel of grace. I want you to listen to this frightening question from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. He poses a very frightening question. He says, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Guys, grace cannot be earned, but it must be received. The gospel of grace is to be obeyed. And those who choose to not obey this gospel of grace by receiving it, they're not going to receive eternal life in heaven. So the question, to, the answer rather to Peter's question of what's going to be the end of these people who disobey the gospel of God, the answer is they're going to spend eternity in hell. But 
Those who have obeyed the gospel by turning from their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they have a much, much brighter future ahead of them. Look at verse 13. They are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to notice three bold statements about Christ right here. He makes three bold statements about our Lord. One, He is our blessed hope. Two, He's coming again. And three, Jesus is God. You see, the true hope that every Christian has is not really heaven. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is our hope. Believers want to be with Jesus, not just escape hell. We're not looking for a get-out-of-hell-free get out card, right? We're looking for Jesus, the very one who died to save our souls. Now, the words here for glorious appearing, they've been taken a couple of different ways. They can either mean the rapture of the church, Okay, that would be based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Or it could mean his second coming after the tribulation, based on Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And there's plenty of debate about that, okay? But I personally believe Paul's referring to the rapture here. All right? But make no mistake about it. Here's the deal. When Christ appears, it will be glorious. Either way, right? Now, at the very end of this verse... Paul makes one of the most clear statements that we have in all of Scripture regarding the deity of Christ. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than that. The Bible is absolutely clear on who Jesus Christ is. He's God. Peter called him the Christ in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Thomas called him my Lord and my God in John 20, verse 28. And Paul calls him our great God and Savior right here in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. So please, don't let the world confuse you about who Jesus Christ is. All right, because we've just read in Scripture that Christ is our blessed hope, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and He is God, and He is coming again. Praise the Lord. Therefore, every single born-again Christian should be on the lookout for Him. We should be looking for Christ. Don't lose focus. Okay, don't lose focus, believer. Keep looking. Keep hoping. Because he's coming. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, this right here is what Jesus did. And this is why he done it, right? I mean, there is so much, again, there's so much gospel truth here in verse 14. Just as grace was brought to you, Christ gave himself for you. Okay, we didn't earn or obtain this grace. And here's something else we, know, we notice from this verse. Man did not kill Christ, right? No, he gave himself for us. Jesus said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. So Jesus gave himself for you. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's John 3.16. Everybody knows that verse. But why? that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Amen. Guys, when Christ redeems you, he takes away every sin. Okay? So here's the deal. You can stop punishing yourself for all of that guilt. You can stop punishing yourself with shame. Look, Christ was punished for you. He took your guilt and he took your shame for you. So in the eyes of God, if you are in Christ, you are pure. 
because he has purified you for himself. You are one of his own special people. Just think about that. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Listen, have you confessed your sins? And have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone by faith to save you? If you have, then trust the word of God this morning. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are pure in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are special. Look, you don't have to take my word for it. Just read the book and believe the word of God. The more you begin to fully understand all that Christ has done for you, then the more zealous you will be for good works, right? Serving in the kingdom, the kingdom of God is not going to be a burden for you, okay? It's going to be a blessing, and you're going to be zealous to do it. Now, to have zeal, it means to have great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause, right? So I personally can't think of a better cause to get zealous about than the cause of Christ. Verse 15, and we're done. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So Paul has spent the last several verses explaining behavioral expectations uh, of the church and of its pastor. But I don't want you to fall into the trap of thinking that all we need to do as believers is just live a good moral life, you know, something like that. That's not it. Okay. Some of you guys may have heard this really ridiculous quote. It's, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure if he actually said this, um, but that's who gets the blame for it. But he says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. What a bunch of baloney. That's an absolute joke. It's very unbiblical. Paul said, speak these things. Speak them. Yes, live a life of obedience to Christ, but also tell people about Jesus, right? We can walk and chew gum at the same time, can't we? Yeah, we can do both and. Jesus said, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, you know, like with words. Paul said, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him and whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. So believer, like it or not, you're a preacher. You are a preacher. And you have been sent to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So speak these things. Speak them with your life, yes, but speak them with your mouth. Don't shut up. You keep speaking, okay? Because there's a world out there that increasingly hates God, and they need to hear the good news that Jesus saves. Paul said to exhort. So the word here is parakaleo. It means to comfort. And I know, I mean, it's comforting to know that Jesus died for my sins. I know that. It's comforting for me to know that he's coming again to take me home. But you know, Paul used this same word, parakaleo, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, after talking about Christ's return. He said, comfort one another with these words. Do you remember that passage? And the word for helper that Jesus used over in John 14, 16, in reference to the Holy Spirit is parakletos. It means, guess what? Comforter. Comforter. So exhort people with the gospel. Comfort them with its saving power, in other words, Okay. You don't have to beat people over the head with the Bible. 
No, a weary soul that is sick with sin needs comfort. Needs comfort. How comforting to know that the Lord Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. However, an indignant soul, one who's divisive, one who's out there teaching false doctrine, that person needs to be rebuked. Paul said, you know what? And when you do it, you rebuke, you rebuke with all authority, okay? And by the way, you don't have to be a preacher like Titus to stand on the authority of the Scriptures. If you have a Bible, you have all the authority you will ever need, okay? So you don't have to waste your time arguing with divisive people. Just rebuke them based on the authority of Scripture, and Paul's going to address this further in chapter 3, which we'll see next week. But lastly here, Paul tells Titus, look, let no one despise you, okay? Let no one despise you. And that's right, believer. So we can keep our chin up, right? Don't let anybody despise you, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're mature in the faith or whether you're young in the faith. If you're in Christ, you are one of his own special people. We just heard that, right? So you don't have to listen to the naysayers out there who have been telling you you're not good enough that you don't matter, that you're too much of this and not enough of that. No, no. You just listen to the Word of God. You're special. God brought saving grace to you through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave His life for you. So don't tell me you're not special. I know better. I know better. The Bible tells me that Jesus Christ loves you so let that motivate you to start living for the Lord Jesus Christ and telling other people that Jesus Christ loves them. Father, we love you and we thank you for this message. Thank you for your word, your eternal word that has been settled in heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would sink it deep into our hearts this morning, that we would fully understand the message that you have for us and how what you've just taught us from your word relates to where we're at in our life. We might be an older believer. We might be a younger believer. This passage relates to all of us. We might not be a believer at all. And of course, this passage relates to us as well. And so if you find yourself in that camp this morning of someone who has never repented of their sins, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. To repent simply means to turn away. Turn away from your sin. And turn to the Lord Jesus Christ alone by faith, believing that He is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again so that you can have hope of eternal life in Him. Do you believe that? If you'll turn, or, turn away from your sin and believe that, talk to the Lord about it this morning. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him to save your soul. He'll do it. Believer, maybe you're older in the faith. Maybe you haven't walked where you should be walking. Young believer, maybe you haven't been taught. Maybe you don't know how to walk. Maybe it's time to get deeper in the Word. Lord, there is a message here for all of us. And I pray that we can understand it and that it will motivate us to get busy living our life for you. 
Time is short. Time is short. Your word tells us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to keep our eyes toward heaven, to live in a way that we will be ready for your return, that we won't have regrets when you get here. Would you help us to do that? Would you strengthen us for that walk? Please have your way this morning, Father. You are good, and you have given us your only Son so that we can have new life, that we can be forgiven and have a home in heaven. We are forever grateful. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would have your way now in Jesus' holy name. Amen.